morning I want to uh, talk about a Christian's relationship to the state and about our responsibility as believers uh, politically. Now, this is a very sensitive and uh, controversial type issue on which uh, many Christians have many different points of view. And because our convictions about these matters are held so deeply and with such uh, intensity, I think what I'd like to do as we start our discussion this morning is just pause for a moment and just ask the Lord to really... Uh, govern our thinking and our responses this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for your grace as we uh, approach with some fear and trembling this uh, uh, topic, which is so controversial, even in the church. We pray this morning, Lord, that you'd uh, give us hearts at this point that are responsive to the truth. We pray that you will enable us in the uh, in our hearts to think with clarity and with real discernment about these issues. And above all, to think biblically. We pray, Lord, that you give us an honest commitment in our hearts this morning to allow our convictions about political issues to be determined as much as possible by the Scripture and by the Scripture alone. Give us grace in this task this morning. We ask for your blessing upon our discussion of these issues today. Amen. Well, 1984, of course, is a presidential election year. Uh, The Democrats just finished their national convention, and the Republicans will shortly be holding theirs. And so from now until November, we are going to be bombarded daily with uh, uh, debates and statements and issues that are political in nature. And all of us are going to be forced to make choices of one sort or another about where we stand. I, uh, you may be like my daughter. I was, uh, we were just on vacation to California, and I was buckling my little two-and-a-half-year-old daughter into the uh, car seat, and I was uh, singing this Beach Boys song, and I was uh, moving along at a pretty good clip, and I'm right in the middle of buckling her in, and all of a sudden she interrupts me and says, Daddy, Daddy, stop singing. And I said, Why, Jana? And she said, Because it makes me sick. <laughs> I think the people in my office can uh, sympathize with that. But, you know, that may be your reaction to the whole subject of uh, politics. It just sort of makes you nauseous every time somebody brings it up. And yet we're just going to be bombarded between now and November with political issues and political affairs. And I think it's important that we seek to think biblically about these issues that, uh, that face us. Geraldine Ferraro, who's the Democratic vice presidential candidate, uh, last week went on record saying that Ronald Reagan could not be a good Christian because of his policies. I remember several years ago, Jerry Falwell was quoted as saying that it's impossible to be a good Christian and a liberal Democrat at the same time. So, we've got to decide who's right. Is it impossible to be a good Christian and a conservative Republican, as Geraldine Ferraro insists? Is it impossible to be a good Christian and a liberal Democrat, as Jerry Falwell insists? We need to ask the question and seek to answer it if we can. Is there a distinctively Christian position on political issues of controversy, such as the nuclear arms race or abortion or civil rights for homosexuals or social security or welfare or gun control or the U.S. involvement in Central America? Is there a distinctively Christian position on these political issues? And if there is one, then what is it? 
Another question we need to answer is what sort of political involvement should I be expected to be involved in? Is there any sort of political activity that's required or obligatory of all Christians? And what I'd like to do with you this morning is look at the central passage in the New Testament which touches on the Christian's relationship to the state, understand precisely as much as we can what the New Testament teaches about our political responsibility as Christians, and then try to make some observations that we'll draw from there. I have just a couple of preliminary observations before we turn to that uh, passage. One is to just remark again how much we need the light of the scripture in this area of life. Dennis Dixon, who uh, was a miner for his career before he came to Boise to join the intern program, told me how critical light was in his work. They went into a mine shaft deep in the earth that would be so dark that you literally could not see your hand in front of your face at a distance of one or two inches. simply couldn't see it because it was so dark. And without the light of the miner's lamp, they were constantly in danger of injuring themselves, of slipping down a shaft, of tripping over rocks, of uh, bumping into overhangs and so forth. And he realized how critical it was to have light in a dark place. And so it's critical for us to take the light of the scriptures and shine it on this issue and allow it to illumine for us what the real issues are in life. Now another preliminary observation I think we need to make is that there is nothing distinctively, uh, or there's nothing necessarily sordid or tawdry or dirty about uh, politics. There's a temptation to uh, think that way. But it's not true. There's nothing sub-Christian about the political arena or about a Christian's involvement in that arena. Uh, Although we're tempted to think that way. I remember hearing a story about three theologians who were sitting around trying to decide what sort of uh, human God had created first. And one theologian said, well, I'm convinced that the first human that God created was an artist because he needed somebody to bring uh, beauty out of the original chaos. And another theologian said, well, no, I, uh, I think it must have been an engineer because God needed an engineer to bring structure and design out of this original chaos. And the third theologian says, no, I think you're both wrong. He created a politician first because somebody had to put the chaos there in the first place. <laughs> but there isn't anything sordid or about uh, political involvement. If you read the Old Testament, you realize that God himself was very active uh, politically. And if you look at the, some of the models that were given in the scripture to imitate of men who were righteous and models for us of a life of faith, they were often statesmen, such as David and, and Solomon. Now, another preliminary observation before we look at Romans 13 is to realize, and this is very instructive for us, I think, to realize that the government's under which believers in the entire history of the Bible lived were, without exception, totalitarian. There's not a single believer uh, in the Bible who lived under a democratic form of government. That makes it very instructive when we come to passages in the New Testament which talk about submitting to authority and so forth, because essentially what the writers of Scripture were asking their people to do were to submit to governments which were much more like the Soviet Union form of government in character and tone and substance than the form of democracy that we have in this country. And one last observation I would make is that the one time in the uh, pages of Scripture in which the people had some choice about their own political leader, they made a disastrous mistake. 
And I'm thinking, of course, of the Israelites' selection of Saul as their first king. They disregarded the advice of both God and Samuel in choosing a king in the first place and said they wanted a king because they wanted to be like the other nations. That was their reason for having a king. And then when they did make a choice, they selected Saul on all of the wrong bases. We're told in 1 Samuel that that Saul's father was a man of valor, or probably what that means is a man of wealth or influence. And we're told that Saul was a choice and handsome man. He was the best-looking guy in Israel. And so the Israelites, in choosing their leader, were influenced primarily by Saul's money and influence and by his looks or by his charisma. And they made a disastrous choice because their choice was governed by those factors. And I think it's a reminder to us, as we're faced with political choices between leaders, to realize how easily we ourselves can be deceived by appearance. And it's important that we seek as much as possible to look beyond the appearance to substance, to character, to that which qualifies a man for office. Well, the main passage in the New Testament that deals with the Christian's responsibility toward the state is found in Romans 13. I'd like to have you turn there with me. And we will study it briefly together this morning. And then I will try to suggest some implications to govern our thinking. Now, as we'll study this morning, we'll see that there are basically four responsibilities that every one of us as believers have. Four political responsibilities that each of us as believers in Jesus have. Now, the first one of those, Paul uh, describes for us in the first half of verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. So Paul's first word is that a Christian's responsibility is to submit. The word to be in subjection, to submit here, means to literally to place yourself under, to arrange yourself under the governing authorities. So simply put, that means that a Christian's first political responsibility is to obey the laws of the land. If you look in Titus 3, where Paul discusses the same issue, that's again the word he begins with. He says to Titus, remind them to be in subjection to governing authorities. In 1 Peter 2, when Peter talks about this issue, that's again how he begins his discussion. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, he says, to every human institution, whether to a king or to governors who were sent by him to punish evildoers. So that's our first responsibility then, to obey uh, government. Now the one exception to this is when to obey government would involve me in personal disobedience. That's the only time I'm justified in disobeying governing authority. If I were a Christian pregnant Chinese woman living in China, and the government, as it is today, there was insisting that I get an abortion if I have already have one or two children, then if my belief was that the scripture teaches the sanctity of human life and so forth, then I would have to respectfully uh, disobey that order of my government. But that's the only time when we can draw that line when to obey would involve us in personal disobedience. Now, Paul gives two reasons why we are to submit. The first one is in the end of verse 1 and verse 2. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority 
has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So the first reason Paul says we're to submit is that if we resist government, we are resisting God. To oppose the government that God has established means that we become an opponent or an enemy of God. Obviously not something that we should become. Now Paul points out that every governing authority which exists in our life has been placed there by God. Whether it's the authority of the president or the congress or the mayor of Boise or the city council or the zoning commission... Each one of those governmental authorities has been established, fixed, set in place by God. Says every authority has been established by God. Uh, Wes Seidemann runs a sound system here on Sunday mornings, and when he came in this morning, he uh, set various microphones in place around the front here in order to accomplish uh, the purpose of the morning. Well, that's, that's a picture of what God does with governments. He walks around the earth establishing them, fixing them in place. And that's his responsibility to do so. Now, it's important to realize that in thinking about our own form of government because it's common for us to think, in fact, this is the way we're taught, that our government derives its authority from the American people. Well, is that, is that true? Well, not really, according to the Scripture. In reality, the governing authorities in our country derive their authority not from the American people, but from God. Now, there's another implication of this, and that is if the wrong party gets elected in uh, November, the wrong man gets elected in November, whose fault is that really? Well, that's God's fault. Uh, it's easy for us to think that the issue of who is elected in November rests in the hands of the American people. It's not really true. This decision ultimately rests with God, and he is the one who establishes, who sets in place the governments that he chooses that will fulfill his purposes. Now, the second reason that Paul gives for obeying authority is in verses 3 and 4, and that is quite simply you get in trouble if you don't obey. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. One thing I'd point out to you is how often in this passage Paul describes governing authorities as being from God, as being established by God, in verse 4, he says twice that government is a minister of God, and in verse 6, that they are servants of God. And this applies even though a government official may be completely unaware of that. When Paul wrote these words, he was describing the emperor Claudius, who was a godless uh, reprobate, and had no idea that in discharging his responsibilities as head of the Roman state, he was in reality serving an unseen God. Now, as I mentioned, Paul says the second reason we're to submit is that we get in trouble if we don't. He says in uh, verse 3, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. In other words, if you don't want to be anxiously checking your rearview mirror all the time, then just drive 55 and you'll have nothing to fear. If you uh, don't want to be afraid of an IRS audit, 
and don't cheat or lie on your income tax. It's that simple. And he describes government here as an avenger or a punisher of wrongdoing. And there's a connection here between the end of chapter 12. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in the end of chapter 12, Paul says, Do not take vengeance into your own hands, but leave room for the wrath of God. And then he turns right around in chapter 13 and says that government is an avenger, a minister of God, to punish evildoers. So we are to never to take vengeance or punishment into our own hands, but allow God's chosen servant, the state, to do that uh, for us. A number of uh, people in our congregation uh, were victims of uh, what amounted to a swindling investment deal several years ago. And uh, several people in our fellowship lost substantial amounts of money. And the man who's responsible for that is now doing time in a federal penitentiary. See, that's God's way of using government as his servant to avenge those who wrong his people. And we are to stand back and allow the servant of God to do that rather than take that issue into our own hands. And he mentions here that Roman government does not bear the sword for nothing. Now, the sword was an instrument of capital punishment. They used the sword to lop people's heads off. That's how Paul met his own death, at the hands of a Roman uh, centurion who brought a sword down on the back of his neck. So it's Paul's way, then, by implication of suggesting that capital punishment is a legitimate form of punishment for a government to use. Now, the second responsibility he outlines for us in verse 6 The first responsibility is to submit. Secondly, he says in verse 6, Because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So the second major responsibility we have as believers is to pay our taxes, uh, whether they're income taxes or property taxes or sales taxes, to pay them voluntarily and to pay them willingly and to pay them honestly. I know a lot of us feel that the motto of the uh, IRS is uh, probably never have so few taken so much from so many. And yet Paul indicates that taxation is a legitimate form, a legitimate exercise of human government, and we should willingly pay the taxes that government asks from us. So it's clear then we should never fudge on our income tax. That's one of the implications of this. Never lie or cheat or defraud the government out of what is what rightfully belongs to uh, Caesar. I was interested to read last fall, by the way, that uh, when the IRS published a report on the people who uh, contribute to what's called a conscience fund. That is, people who have in the past cheated on their income taxes, and for some reason their consciences have begun to, begun to bother them, they feel guilty about it, and so they start to pay the government back for money they've deprived uh, from, the, from government in the past. And one of the things that this uh, report uh, indicated, and this was just in a secular publication, was that most of the people who do that are people who have become what he called born-again Christians. When they became Christians and began to serve a new Lord in life, they began to realize the error and the sinfulness of what they'd done and were taking steps to make it right. And that's appropriate. Now, there's a second implication of this, and that is that there's no indication that it's ever appropriate for a Christian to withhold a percentage of his income tax as a form of civil protest. There's a clergyman I know in Seattle who's doing that at this time, who's withholding a percentage of his income tax the percentage that he feels goes into national defense, and he's withholding that publicly as a form of protest. 
Well, in Paul's uh, thinking, in the thinking of the Scripture, that simply represents disobedience. When Paul wrote these words, he was instructing his readers to pay taxes to the Roman government, and the Roman government at that time was financing the uh, largest military machine uh, in the history of the world. Uh, And a high percentage of the taxes that were being collected from the people to whom Paul was writing were going to support a military machine. So Paul says we're responsible to pay our taxes willingly, honestly, and completely. Now, Jesus says the same thing, remember, in Matthew 22, when he says we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Someone handed him a coin and said, is it legitimate to pay tax? And Jesus pointed out that the inscription of Caesar was on that coin so that that coin rightfully belonged to Caesar. But then he turns right around and says, you must render to God the things that are God's. That which has the image of God upon it rightfully belongs to God. Well, what is it that has the image of God imprinted on us? Well, that's us. People are in the image of God. So Caesar, government, has a rightful authority over man's pocketbook, but only God has authority over man's person. And our ultimate allegiance in these affairs always belongs to, not to government, but to God. I think one of the dangers we have in this issue of ultimate allegiance, when we're in the most danger of upending our priorities here and serving uh, Caesar rather than Jesus as Lord, is when we are the most passionately convinced about some issue. When we are passionately committed to some political cause or point of view, that's when we're the most likely to be guilty of imbalance here and begin serving some political cause or moral crusade as our God rather than Jesus. And we must always remember that we owe ourselves to God. That's our ultimate allegiance, not to some political cause. Now, one other thing, I just want to suggest this for your thinking, and I won't advance this too forcefully because I hope to make it out of here alive this morning and live to preach again. But in light of what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 22, that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and remember, he was saying that to Jews who were being asked to pay taxes to Rome. In other words, they were being taxed to support a government that they had no influence over, no uh, representation in, no uh, voice in. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And in light of what Paul says here in Romans 13, that every person, that is every person without exception, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, I would challenge you to spend some time just rethinking your perspective on the American Revolution. Uh, Whether this is something which indeed represents an act uh, of bravery and courage on the part of our founding fathers, or whether it simply represents an act of disobedience to what the Scripture teaches about our relationship to government. That's as far as I'm going to push that. (laughs) Now, our third responsibility is lined out for us in verse uh, 7. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom. Custom there is simply a different type of tax, an indirect tax, a toll-type tax. But this is what I want you to observe. Fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. 
So the third responsibility, not only are we to submit to government, not only are we to secondly pay taxes, but thirdly we are to honor and respect our leaders. I know a lot of us think that uh, we shouldn't be too hard on politicians because they're doing the work of two men, Laurel and Hardy. And, uh, <laughs> but what Paul suggests, what Paul states very clearly, is that one of our political obligations is to honor and to respect men who hold uh, government office, political office. We're never to uh, ridicule or condemn or demean or attack a man who is holding legitimate government uh, office and power. doesn't mean we always have to agree with them, but if there is disagreement, we must express that disagreement in tones that are calm and are honorable and respectful. Paul did the same thing in Acts 23. If you remember, he was standing before the Sanhedrin and evidently was, uh, had very poor eyesight at that time. And the high priest, and Paul not realizing it was the high priest, said something that Paul didn't like, and so he immediately called the guy a whitewashed wall. I don't know if you've ever used that on anybody, but you might save that up sometime when you really need a good one. But he called this, called this man a whitewashed wall, and someone next to him struck him on, a, on the mouth and said, how dare you speak that way to the high priest? And immediately Paul apologized. He says, yeah, you're right, I overstepped my bounds. I didn't realize that was the high priest because the scriptures, Paul goes on to say, are very clear. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So this is a question I would encourage each of us to ask in our hearts this morning is, am I somebody who speaks evil of the rulers of my people? Or is my disagreement one which is respectful and, uh, and honoring and calm? Now, the fourth responsibility is given to us over in 1 Timothy 2, and I'd like you to turn there just for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, as Paul again discusses our relationship and responsibility toward the state, he says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men specifically for kings and all who are in authority. So our fourth responsibility as believers is to pray for our leaders. Whether or not we agree with their policies or decisions, we are obligated to pray for them. And it's obviously unchristian to criticize someone if you've not first uh, prayed for him. So our fourth responsibility then is clearly to pray for our leaders. Now, you notice as Paul goes on that we are not to pray for them in order that they might become more conservative or become more liberal or become more budget conscious or something like that. But notice what he says. Pray for them in verse 2, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That is the fundamental thing we are to pray for is that our leaders would be given the wisdom to create domestic peace, create an atmosphere of rest and tranquility in society, and for this purpose, in verse 3, that that is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul recognized that the best climate in which the gospel can expand is in a climate of tranquility and peace. So we ought to pray that way for our leaders, that they'll be given the wisdom to create an environment in our society 
which is peaceful and tranquil, so that the gospel can go forward. Because what Paul is recognizing here is that always in life, the most fundamental issues in life are never political, but spiritual. And so our prayer about political affairs and events is prayer that our leaders might be given the sort of wisdom in making political decisions so that the true fundamental issues in life, the spiritual issues, can be discussed and can be advanced and so that God's kingdom can make progress in the world. Now, in verse 8, I want you to skip down to verse 8 and notice what Paul says in concluding his discussion on prayer for government. He says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, why would Paul mention that here? Why does he specifically say, I want your prayer as believers to be offered up without wrath and dissension? Well, what are we praying for? Well, we're praying for peace. So Paul says it's clearly hypocritical for Christians to pray for peace in society when they cannot get along with each other. Now, one of the implications of this, clearly, is that we must not allow political differences of opinion to divide us from other believers. We must not allow our political convictions to create between us and another believer uh, wrath or dissension. And I think this can be a healthy gauge for us of whether or not our, our involvement or our convictions about political things are too important to us. If we cannot discuss political issues and political affairs without becoming argumentative and quarrelsome, if we allow at any point a political difference of opinion to divide us, to rupture a relationship with another believer, then politics are simply too important to us. Paul's very clear in 2 Timothy 2 when he says that the bondservant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. And that includes quarreling over political issues as well as theological ones. Now, I just want to summarize and try to draw some implications. We have looked, uh, however briefly, at all of the major passages in the New Testament which deal with a Christian's responsibility toward the state. Now, there are several things that I think we can draw as conclusions from our discussion. First of all, it's clear from what we've looked at that our basic responsibility as believers is to submit to authority, to submit to government, not, not to change it or to reform it. If we're given that opportunity, we by all means ought to take advantage of it. But we're never in the New Testament commanded to change or reform governmental structures. We're always commanded to submit to them. Secondly, if we have obeyed and done these four things that we've looked at, if we are submitting to government by obeying its laws, if we are paying our taxes, uh, if we are honoring our leaders, and if we are praying for them, then we have discharged our political responsibility as believers. We have done everything politically that the scripture requires of us as believers. Now, any political involvement beyond that, then, becomes a matter of individual choice. We're not even required by the scriptures to be well-informed politically. It's not mandatory upon all believers that they even register or vote. I think that may represent the forfeiture of a great privilege, but it's not something which is biblically binding upon all believers. 
So if uh, we are challenged at some point to say that every Christian must become involved in the political process, I think we can respectfully say, well, where in the scripture do you see that? Because all of the passages that we have discussed do not include any injunctions on our part to be involved. That's a matter of individual choice. I think it's uh, most likely unwise to pass up that opportunity. But we must realize it's a matter of individual choice and not a biblical mandate. Now, the third thing, and this is where we start to get onto uh, the thin ice, and here I really want you to think with me now, and uh, let's try to really allow the Lord to govern our thinking on this so our, our thinking is really biblical and not governed by the world around us. The next point I'd want to make is that if you look carefully at the New Testament, you will see that the New Testament nowhere tells us what the ideal political system is. It's simply silent on that issue. The New Testament never says that democracy is better than monarchy, for example. Never says that capitalism is better than socialism. Now, they may be, but the scriptures are simply silent on those issues. And so we must not presume to speak authoritatively on those issues where the scriptures are silent. Now, what this means practically is that there is nothing in the New Testament that will tell me all by itself whether, whether I as a Christian ought to be a Democrat or Republican. Scripture is simply silent on those issues. It doesn't tell me which of the two parties I should choose. So that means that this whole area of the political convictions and allegiances that we have as God's people is a matter of individual conscience. It falls into what the scriptures refer to as matters of indifference or what we might refer to as gray areas. Areas in which the scriptures do not speak definitively and clearly. And in those cases, what God asks us to do as his people is to work out individually in our own conscience before him the political convictions that we feel for ourselves are correct and right. And then never to impose those or insist that other Christians think about these issues in the same way that we do. Now, what this means practically is that no one can claim to have the distinctively Christian position on these controversial issues. There is no such thing as the distinctive Christian position on nuclear arms or ERA or welfare or gun control or Social Security or zoning ordinances or our involvement in Central America. Now, secondly, what this means, as I've said before, is that we must uh, work these issues out in our own individual conscience and not try to coerce other believers into seeing things exactly the same way that we do because this is a gray area. In Romans 14, Paul discusses gray areas and the sort of approach that we as believers ought to have in these areas. And I want to paraphrase Romans 14, verses 1 through 5. You can turn back there if you wish, but I'm going to paraphrase and, and uh, plug in uh, variables to update that uh, chapter into the 20th century. And this is the way I would paraphrase Romans 14. Accept the one who has different political convictions, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man supports Walter Mondale, another supports Ronald Reagan. Let not him who supports Ronald Reagan regard with contempt him who supports Walter Mondale, 
And let not him who supports Walter Mondale judge him who supports Ronald Reagan, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man supports gun control, another man opposes it. One man supports the ERA, another man opposes it. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So what's important that we do then as believers is we're free to develop whatever political convictions we feel are right, whether they are uh, classed as liberal or conservative, in our own conscience before the Lord. But then we must be tolerant of other believers who come to different political conclusions. Now, a fourth observation I'd make is that often in our society, the disagreement between, let's say, Democrats and Republicans is primarily over... Uh, means rather than ends. It's a difference of degree rather than one of kind. Uh, both of our major political parties agree that government has the functions that we've looked at today, that, uh, that government has the appropriate function of making laws, of levying taxes to provide for the needs of its citizens, uh, that it uh, has a responsibility to punish evildoers, has a responsibility to ensure domestic tranquility. There's no difference of opinion on those basic issues between your average Democrat and the average Republican. Where the disagreement comes is on how best to achieve those ends. Now, that difference of opinion, I think we must realize, is one that is basic, basically pragmatic rather than moral. It's a matter of difference of degree rather than kind. Uh, take the issue of social programs compared to national defense, for example. Uh, that difference between your typical Democrat and typical Republican is largely one of degree rather than kind. Both believe in the need for social programs. Both believe in the need for a strong national defense. The issue is how much of our resources nationally do we allocate to one and how much to the other. And so we must realize that that is largely a pragmatic issue rather than a moral one. Now, a fifth... Um, observation I would make is it's possible for two Christians to begin from the same scriptural point of view and come to different conclusions about what is best politically. For example, two Christians may both be convinced that man is inherently sinful, that he, as the scripture teaches, comes into the world basically a twisted, selfish, self-centered individual, which, if left to himself, will harm and destroy other people. And that's what the Bible teaches about our humanity. Now, let's say two Christians both believe that firmly. Now, let's apply that, for example, to the issue of the size or the intervention of government in the public sector. How much of that is appropriate? Well, one man, one Christian, starting from the standpoint that man is basically sinful, reasons this way. Since man is basically sinful, if he's left to himself, he will inevitably take advantage of others. He will abuse those uh, who are weaker than he is and take advantage of them. Therefore, we must be sure that government is active enough and uh, has enough authority to intervene to keep that from happening no matter where in society it occurs. Now, another man, starting from exactly the same point, may argue this way. If man is basically sinful, then we do not want to invest too much authority or too much control or too much power in anyone because those people are themselves sinful. If we give them too much authority, 
too much intervention in private life, then they inevitably will begin to take advantage of the weak and the civil rights of uh, people will be ignored. Now, do you understand what I'm saying there? So you can start from exactly the same theological point of view and by following a different line of logic, either of those legitimate, come to two different conclusions about how an issue ought to be approached. Same applies to the arms race. One believer, believing that man is basically sinful, argues this way. Since man is basically sinful, we ought not to put anything into his hands that will give him the power to destroy humanity, because the odds are that at some point he will use it. Now, another believer, starting from the same point that mankind is basically sinful, says we had better be sure that if our enemies have enough power to destroy us, that we've got enough power to keep them from doing it. And see what I'm, see what I'm saying there? You can start from exactly the same theological point of view and come up with two different political approaches. And both of those, since they fall into the gray areas in Scripture, are legitimate positions for believers to hold. And we as believers must be tolerant of those who have a different point of view than we do. A couple of more comments before we close. One is that our extent of political involvement is a matter of individual conscience. Uh, If God has called you to be involved in the political arena, then by all means, follow that out and serve him in in that realm. Another comment is that we live in a fallen world, and that means we'll probably never have perfect options available to, you, to us. As you evaluate your own convictions and stack those up with the elective options that are available to you, you'll probably find that you don't agree with the, either of the candidates or the parties 100%. And that's simply the consequence of living in a fallen world. And lastly, we must realize that political office is a vocation just like any other vocation. And because a man is a Christian, it will not necessarily make him a more skilled legislator or politician any more than it will make him a better dentist or an electrician. Now, it should make him a more honest one and a more upright one, but it will not necessarily make him more skilled. And so I think we as believers must be careful that we don't elect a man into office simply because he is a believer but we must elect him only if he is a believer and qualified to hold public office. Uh, my brother-in-law told me in California this week that they have be, they've gotten active in politics over the last three or four years and supported several candidates, each of whom was a believer. And he told me, uh, to our shame, that every one of the Christians that they supported for political office are now either in jail or have been voted out of office because of improprieties that they committed while they held elective office. So we need to exercise discernment in making these choices and not be naive or blind about this. Well, let's go back to the question we started with to bring our discussion to a close. Uh, who's right? Is Geraldine Ferraro right? It's impossible to be a Christian and a conservative Republican. Or is Jerry Falwell right that it's impossible to be a Christian and a liberal Democrat? Well, I believe the answer to the scripture is, from the Scripture is that neither of those points of view is entirely correct. It is possible, I believe, to be a good Christian and to be a Democrat. It is possible to be a good Christian and to be a Republican. It is also possible to be a bad Christian and be a Democrat, and it's possible to be a bad Christian and be a Republican. You must realize that these choices are a matter of individual conscience. And the very last thing I want to say is that we must always realize in this discussion that political solutions to human problems are never ultimate. That any legislative or political solution can only by its very nature be something which is temporary, 
something which touches the surface because political life by its very nature can only affect the body can only affect the, uh, the what Paul calls the outer man it can only touch our environment but it can do nothing for the hurt and the pain and the disease of our humanity there is, there is no uh, legislative action in the world that can redeem a man or a woman that can save him from himself that can begin to put the pieces of a broken life back together and answer the deepest longings and needs of our humanity. Only God can do that. And that's one of the reasons why we never ought to allow political differences to divide us, that compared to the work that God wants to do in the human heart, the work that uh, political parties are doing in, in our society pales into insignificance. We're always, dis we're always getting that distorted. We always think because political things make such a big splash and are always on the front page that somehow those are the really fundamental issues and important things in life. But they're not. Governments come and go. They pass. Uh, laws are passed. Laws are rescinded. The one thing that abides is that man has a need for the saving grace and redemptive work of God in the human heart. Man needs something that will touch him in the soul and in the spirit. Now, that's what the gospel offers us. Uh, those of us who have lives which are broken, those of us that are hopeless, discouraged, uh, depressed, anxious, guilt-ridden, those are the real needs of humanity. That's where people live day in and day out. And there isn't a legislative program in the world that can do anything for those needs. God alone, with his grace through Jesus Christ, can touch that. So, mowing my lawn recently, and I try to mow a different pattern every time I mow. Sometimes I go up and down and crossways, and every once in a while I try to go diagonally. Someone told me this is good for my grass. So I try to go diagonally. Well, I found when I tried to go diagonally across my lawn that if I held a mower and I kind of looked right in front of the mower and to each side and tried to st steer a straight path, and I got to the other side of the lawn, it was wavy, wandered all over the place. The only way I could mow a straight line across my lawn was to keep my eye on the fence post in the far corner of the yard. And if I looked up and kept my eye on that fence post, I invariably cut a straight path to the goal. I think that's a lesson for us, that in, in walking our way as believers through the political minefields that are all around us, the most important thing we can do is to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and walk toward him. And if we do so, then he will enable us to step carefully and to walk a straight path in, uh, in this area, not departing to the extremes of either the right or the left. Let's pray together. Father, uh, just again want to ask you to be at work in each of our hearts as we uh, think through the, uh, this whole area of life, uh, which is so uh, integral a part of our own culture. We pray as believers that you would really help us to be honest with the Scripture, to think very clearly and forthrightly, to be willing to submit ourselves to what the Scripture teaches us, even if it cuts across uh, cherished views that we have held with conviction and intensity for many years. Give us the grace uh, by your power and strength to let go of any point of view that uh, runs counter to what the Scripture teaches so that we might truly be people who are governed by the perspective of Scripture. We thank you that your grace is so sufficient for us that you touch the deepest needs of our humanity and in a way that the state can never do. Pray that you'll never let us lose sight of the fact that our deepest need in life is for you to be at work, to heal us, to restore us, to empower us, to forgive us.
to strengthen us. Never let us lose sight of the fact that that is the most important message that, that men and women around us need to hear. Give us the grace and the boldness to share that glorious truth with them. In the name of Jesus, amen.